The last time we had a municipal election in Toronto, we ended up talking more about Premier Doug Ford than the actual mayoral and council races. That's because the election was effectively hijacked when the new premier announced in the middle of the election he was cutting the number of council seats in Toronto. This absolutely blew apart the election, sent candidates scrambling, wondering which ward they would run in or if they should still run. There were protests and court challenges, but to no avail. Ultimately, we didn't get the election we deserved, and the people elected to the new, much smaller council found themselves overseeing ward populations that in many cases rivaled small to mid-sized cities. As for the major issues, there wasn't much time or energy left for that. Doug Ford somehow managed to make Toronto's election about him. Now, just as another Toronto election is kicking off, the newly re-elected Premier has decided to once again put his greasy stamp on local democracy, announcing his intention to establish a strong mayor system in Toronto and Ottawa. If you believe Ford, this will allow whoever the next mayor of Toronto is to use veto powers and special control over the budget to override council and fast-track housing and other provincial priorities. In practice, however, many worry this will simply erode the power of local councillors, already eroded by the 2018 council seat cuts, to the point of practical irrelevance, with the mayor rubber-stamping whatever the premier wants. Doug Ford has somehow managed to make another Toronto election all about him. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from the seventh wave of the pandemic and a provincial healthcare crisis, I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, former Toronto Mayor David Miller joins me to talk about the strong mayor proposal, why he believes it would be harmful to local democracy. And because we refuse to give an entire episode over to Doug Ford's meddlings, again, we talk about what should be election issues this fall, housing, transit, and combating climate change. Stand by. So, David, you co-authored a piece in the Toronto Star, co-signed by former mayors David Crombie, Barbara Hall, Art Eggleton, and John Sewell, opposing this idea of uh, the strong mayor system that is coming uh, from the desk of uh, Premier Doug Ford. Can you kind of explain what, what the opposition to that is? Well, it's a terrible idea, and the provincial government has absolutely no right to implement it, even if it was a good idea. We just came through an election. There was not a hint of governance changes to Toronto. And it's up to the, from my perspective, up to the people of Toronto to democratically choose our own representatives and, and our own systems of government. You know, we're the equivalent of about something population-wise, something like Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, PEI, and New Brunswick. Suppose Justin Trudeau said, we're going to eliminate half the MPPs in all four of those provinces, and the premiers are all going to report to me. Right. I mean, people will go crazy. <laughs> and it's, it's, that, it's that ludicrous. So the, the idea is terrible. I'm happy to discuss that. There's no democratic reason to do it. And the other thing that 
deeply troubles me having had you know very lengthy experience with the provincial government i don't think it's competent to make decisions about toronto this particular government is clearly not competent in many ways right but as a whole the, the province isn't competent structurally to be making decisions about toronto so for all of those reasons it's just beyond the wrong thing to do it's catastrophic Right. You've specifically argued that uh, th- this really undermines the the power that local councillors can have at, at a ward level. I think a lot of people maybe have a difficult time understanding why that's important at all. Uh, I think uh, that level of government uh, seems to go unnoticed unless there's something tragically wrong. You know, if it's go- if it's working well, people don't notice, and if it's working bad, then then they <laughs> then they understand something. Well, it's fundamental underpinning of democracy, I think that's really an issue. And, you know, by and large, the governments are highly effective. And if you look at the polls over the last 50 years, 70 years, I'll be conservative, I won't say 100 years, because I haven't looked at any polls from 100 years ago, but certainly the last 50 years, respect for municipal government, in particular city government, has always been much higher than provincial and federal, always. People respect it. People might not know their counselor at any given time or have anything to do with it, but there has been constantly that level of respect, and it's significant and it's true over time. And I would argue that one of the reasons for that is the fact that city governments, both because in some instances they're required by law to do so, but also because of the structure with local councillors representing wards, have institutionalized the idea that city councillors engage with local residents about the decisions that affect their lives. And that gives people a meaningful way to participate in those decisions, not just at election time, but on an ongoing basis. So if you disempower councillors, What you're actually doing is disempowering residents when they want to have a meaningful say over the decisions that affect their neighborhoods and their communities. And these can be, you know, from things that to some might seem smaller, but very important locally. For example, in Hyde Park, when I was a councillor, we had an extensive public engagement process around the renovations to the pool. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, this is controversial. There were lap lane swimmers who wanted to leave the pool the way it was. There were families who wanted a beach and a beach entry for little kids. There were teenagers who wanted to have fun. They didn't, you know, they're empowered or they wouldn't have had a say. But we had, ran an important community process and ended up with a result that has stood the test of time. And you see this around planning issues. You see it around public transport issues, people fighting for new bus route or bus stop, public safety issues like traffic calming, all sorts of things. We get to the right answer because people are engaged. They know their neighborhoods and communities. And the person who overall has legitimacy and responsibility for creating that kind of civic engagement is the local council. That's who has the legitimacy. Now, should people have a veto? No, they shouldn't have a veto. Should they have a meaningful and real say? Yes. And if you disempower councillors from decision-making, which is what this proposal does, the mayor needs a third of council 
to uh, uphold his veto, only a third. If you disempower people from meaningful decision-making, you, you really limit their democratic ability to shape the city in their interest. And, you know, there's lots of room for compromise at, at council, but that fundamental democratic principle is at threat of disappearing if this legislation goes through. And this legislation is ostensibly about building more housing and, and building it quicker. Uh, I guess cutting red tape is the idea. Certainly, I think everyone, regardless of their political stripe, would agree that uh, we're in a housing crisis in, in Toronto and other major cities across Canada. I, I've seen some progressive voices wonder if, if this strong mayor idea isn't, isn't better, if it, if it means, you know, uh, kind of... <laughs> going over the head of uh, sort of NIMBY influences that don't want their, you know, so-called stable neighborhoods changed. Uh, but uh, it also occurs to me that uh, this doesn't directly address the, the issue of housing. And, and there would be more direct ways to pass legislation uh, about adding density, uh, you know, at the provincial level. Well, first of all, it's already the law. The provincial law, the Places to Grow Act, right. brought into place by the Liberals, which the Conservatives have criticized numerous times, by the way, by the by, because the vision of this government, let's be clear here, this has nothing to do with addressing the housing crisis in Toronto. This legislation gives the province control of the city of Toronto through the office of the mayor by giving this veto, but only on things where the province tells the mayor what to do. Why are they doing that? Well, I think the only reasonable supposition is it's nothing to do with housing. It's because this particular government is really beholden to developers. And we've seen that in numerous, numerous instances, widely reported about how developers with close ties to this party have either projects approved like highways that directly benefit their land and make them you know, inconceivably rich or specific minister zoning orders. And it's happened again and again. So I think the only reasonable conclusion is it's about that. And if you look at this particular government's vision, nothing to do with building housing in Toronto. It's about facilitating urban sprawl and building on the green belt. That's where they're going. Now, I fully agree. You know, it has become unaffordable for people to rent and to buy housing in Toronto. It was always expensive, but it's become unaffordable. Well, what do you do about that? Giving the mayor the ability to stop things doesn't seem to be a very logical answer if you want to build. And how do you build? Well, first of all, you need people to be part of the conversation. You know, we, we live in a democracy. We don't elect a totalitarian who rams his or her decisions down the throats of everybody else and then gets unelected. It's not supposed to be the system. It's supposed to be a democracy. So you need people to come along. And you also need to be smart about it. And, you know, there are proposals out there that are very smart about housing. I mean, the first thing is we have to use public land to build affordable housing and do that faster. Nothing to do with a strong mayor. It's to do with whether you have a mayor who is prepared to use their bully pulpit. And the, the voice they have as one of the most prominent politicians in this country whoever the incumbent is of the city of Toronto has a voice that's probably not that far behind the prime minister on the national stage. So the question is, will they use their voice in order to expedite the use of public land to build affordable housing? That's one part of it. 
Another part of it is to do things like intensify rapidly along rapid transit lines. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, a third is to think about how do we meet the needs of groups that whose needs won't be met like that, like people who have to live in rooming houses, for example. And there were some proposals about rooming houses in the last council that didn't get approved. Yeah. And I stand to be corrected, but I believe that all of the deputy mayors appointed by the current mayor voted against it. So that's nothing to do with the mayoral veto. That's to do with whether there's a willingness to actually lead. And, you know, to me, all of those things you can make progress on, nothing to do with what the province has suggested. And I'm particularly enamored with the idea to take transit corridors, higher order transit, whether streetcar uh, or busways, if there were, LRT, subway, and change the official plan and the zoning so that you could build six to 10 story buildings as of right. Right. It's a different form. It's a horizontal form. But, you know, if you go back to my time in Transit City, part of the explicit argument for Transit City was if you build that hard infrastructure, rail-based infrastructure, you will be able to build six to nine or 10 or eight to 12 story buildings and have significant intensification in a way that is very different from the nodal development of 60-story buildings that occurs at a few places like Young and Eglinton or downtown and could provide a pretty significant answer to the housing crisis. And, you know, I think what we need to be doing is figuring out what the obstacles to that are and proceeding rapidly. And from my perspective, a city council today has the power and ability, as long as the province doesn't interfere, uh, to do that through uh, changes to the official plan and and zoning. And to to speak more generally about the election, because uh, somehow every time there's an election in Toronto, I end up speaking about Doug Ford instead of the actual local election. But uh, a big thing I've noticed is uh, there's a lot of turnover at the council level. And uh, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about what that might mean for a new council. You know, people always say it's, it's very hard to unseat an incumbent. But uh, are you optimistic that uh, we might see some new faces, new ideas at, at the council level? Well, we're clearly going to see some new faces. Who they are will really depend on whether we see the new ideas. And I, I, I do think it's sad. We've lost some pretty good people like Mike Layton, this terrific uh, councillor. And for my money, would be a great mayor. But, you know, he's not running. <laughs> so my worry is we don't even seem to debate anymore the fact that in another deeply undemocratic and very nearly illegal move, well, I think it's illegal, uh, only four of the Supreme Court judges agreed with me, five disagreed, but I would argue clearly unlawful. You know, the province cut the number of councillors in half in the middle of an election and cut the number of wards, doubled the size of the number of wards. That is correlated with why we're seeing turnover. Mm-hmm. First of all, during COVID, it's very been very difficult to be an elected official. Yeah, for the same you know analogous reasons why it's been difficult on all of us, but particularly difficult for elected officials. And you know, I I work with mayors globally, and we very quickly pulled together mayors around COVID, and you could just see how challenging and hear how challenging it was for them. 
same thing for counselors. But the second thing is by doubling the size of wards, it's made the job of a counselor really, really difficult because the role of a counselor is not just to vote. It's also to oversee the implementation of services. And that's why it's very, very different from the federal and provincial government where you just you vote on a policy and then you go on. The city delivers so many services that getting something through councils is actually the, the price of admission. That's the starting point. So there's a really important oversight role, which is incredibly time intensive. There's an important legislative role. And the most important role of a councillor is in the neighborhood representing the constituents for the reasons I spoke about earlier, mm -hmm. which has become very, very hard to do in the bigger ward. And I worry that in these bigger wards, it's going to minimize opportunities. We saw some really interesting people coming from diverse backgrounds, younger people, you know, first generation people to Canada, I'm first generation, but, you know, lots more people, first generation people running in the last election who dropped out when the wards were made bigger. And, and I do worry that that diversity of voices it is, we're not going to see it because it's hard to run in the big wards. You need kind of a campaign organization. You know, you don't have to be a member of a political party, but it sure helps to have people in the local political party want to work with you. Because it, it's hard. you got to raise quite a bit of money. It's very hard. So, yes, there'll be turnover. I, I do really worry about whether there'll be turnover that represents the future of Toronto or it'll be people running on really simplistic messages. You know, we're going to freeze taxes or something, which, of course, will be a disaster. Right. I mean, for listeners who don't know, uh, I assume most of my listeners would, but uh, some of these wards, uh, you know, it's it's over 100,000 people in a ward that's many times over the, the, the size of the town that I grew up in. <laughs> well, exactly. And they're, you know, uh, you've got one person representing wards that are bigger than Peterborough, for example. Yeah. And Peterborough has a functioning council and, and mayor, as it should. Even the original, the wards prior to this act were difficult to represent because they were so big. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, you get neighborhoods where, you know, some wards, particularly people who are really well off, maybe have less interaction and there's not a lot of development or anything like that. Maybe have less interactions with the councillors. But a lot of places where there are, are people from different economic backgrounds and people with different needs and you've got to really think about public services and green space and everything else. Incredibly time consuming to properly represent people, bring them together and, you know, help them build the community that they want to live in. It's, it's just really challenging. And it's, it's telling for me that when the city of Toronto ran a broad public consultation program, people wanted more representation, not less. And that was what the province interfered with and overturned. Yeah. As usual, incompetently and for political reasons. You know, the premier was very clear about it. He said, I want to get rid of those downtown lefties. That's what he said. Right. And, you know, but somehow, why do we let people get away with that? We did. I, I don't know, but that's a separate argument. <laughs> You mentioned uh, Transit City, your, your plan when you were mayor. Uh, we, we see some of that has survived uh, against a lot of political pressure, but uh, it seems in this local election, or just in general, that uh, big transit pieces like that have kind of been uploaded to the provincial level. But I, I do find it encouraging that uh, 
uh, on a lot of fronts, uh, and you know, it's still early days in this election, but we are talking about active transportation. We're talking about pedestrian safety. Is that encouraging for, for you? I think COVID changed that conversation in Toronto. And active, active transportation, walking, cycling, people realize the importance. They realize the importance of being outside, outdoor space, all of that. And I, I think that's a really positive thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bloor Street bike lanes got built basically overnight. And some of the people on council who supported them had bitterly opposed any efforts at bike lanes. When I was in office and fought like mad to to hold bike infrastructure back, so I I think there has been a change in perspective. I don't think the the case is made, and I don't think we've won the argument fully yet. But mm-hmm. there's been a change in perspective, a recognition that these things matter. Uh, the transit stuff's very interesting because you know what got prominence was Premier McGinty uh, canceling. Well, actually, what got prominence was my successor canceling Shepard. Mm-hmm. Most people didn't notice that Premier McGinty had already canceled Finch. That's what opened up the possibility to cancel Shepard. If it had been under construction, uh, that never would have happened. But as it happens, Finch is under construction. It's almost finished. Yeah, Eglinton's under construction. It's almost finished. Both are way too late. Finch should have been ready eight years ago, and Eglinton six. But given the complexity, four. Right. I think it's fair. And the province, you know, the the work was almost ready, and then the province decided to privatize it and do all the work all over again and make it a PPP history. But, you know, it's coming along. And whether we get all the transit city lines in the end or not, some critical ones are coming. And there's a recognition, I think this argument has been won, that you need a network of higher-order transit if Toronto is going to succeed. And I, I think that is really positive. It's not so positive on some of the money it's wasted, like with a basically a one-stop extension in Scarborough when you could have had three LRT lines for the same price. But I think they'll come because the argument's been won. The argument's on its way to be winning around active transportation. And it'll be interesting to see in this election if councillors are elected on a sort of pro- transport, proactive transport, pro-public transport, pro-environment agenda. Mm -hmm. I think that'll be a bit of a a test. You're currently the managing director of uh, C40, uh, looking at uh, tackling climate change in in cities. I haven't heard a lot about ideas of uh, how to tackle climate change in this election. Granted, you know, there are things like housing and transit and COVID uh, that uh, have kind of preoccupied people, but uh, Obviously, this is a climate change is an imminent threat, and every every year we see major, seemingly more disastrous weather events. So, uh, do you have ideas of how do we get ideas of combating climate change onto the the local agenda and 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 talk about it in this election and sort of uh, you know challenge uh, people who are running for council or mayor to make this an issue and 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 to take it seriously? Well, I think first of all, the, the city has basically a good strategy we had a very good strategy for a while mm-hmm. um 2007 and on not much was done by my successor but fair play to the current city council it's got a good strategy on climate i think where it falls down is making what needs to, to happen happen quickly enough mm-hmm. 
and it's blindingly obvious to everyone this summer when you see the world in flames, Mm -hmm. literally, that climate change is here now. And the fact of the matter is we need to have global emissions by 2030, which is eight years. That's really fast. So how do you do that in a city? Well, active transportation, public transportation, you electrify public transportation, you decarbonize buildings, you decarbonize your waste as much as you can. Toronto's done a pretty good job on that. You decarbonize your electricity system. Well, Ontario's fairly good on that. So, you know, Toronto needs to move farther and faster on its transportation issues and building. They're connected. Mm-hmm. If you do something like I was talking about earlier, where you build, say, legally, you're entitled to build here six to 10 story buildings, six to 12, whatever, eight to 12, where there is transit. And maybe you say you don't need parking. All of a sudden, you have a virtuous circle where people don't need to drive because they're on transit. And if you expedite the building of your transit network, the transit city lines and the other additions that have come since, and really get it moving, you you can make a big contribution. And that all needs to be electric, run by clean electricity, including our buses. But the buses are a good example. You know, Shenzhen, China, as of three years ago, when I was doing the research for my book, Seoul, which is about how world's great cities are solving the climate crisis, had about 16,000 electric buses. Mm-hmm. Toronto had a pilot with 60. <laughs> and we're now starting to get there. We're talking about by 2040. But that fleet could be far more rapidly clean. And then there's buildings. And there's lots of great plans about, but none of them are happening with the alacrity that they should. For example, Tower Renewal, which is a program to help multifamily apartment buildings lower their emissions by insulating them on the outside. Mm-hmm. Dramatic reductions in emissions. It needs a huge amount of funding, but the funding would be paid back over time with the reductions in cost over time from lowering uh, energy use. And you know that's a place where Ottawa should come to the table, the federal government, where the province should come to the table, where the city actually could come to the table more substantively than it does, and it hasn't. So, you know, to me, the bones of the strategy are there. What I'd love to see are candidates saying, climate change is having an impact on our city right now. We've got increased hot weather. We're having worse storms. It has a huge impact on our infrastructure, our quality of life. We have to do our share, and I'm committed to acting, not talking. Mm-hmm. And I hope people during the election ask some hard questions. So we see particularly some of the incumbents who voted for budgets that are essentially freezes because uh, they're inflationary and that's it. So they voted to freeze expenditure, but talk positively about investments in climate when we're not making the investments we need to. I think those kind of counselors need to really be pushed. You know, how how can you vote not to spend money and say you're in favor of the plan? And I hope it's more of an issue in this election. It has been in some other ones. And we've certainly seen it determinative in federal elections. So, you know, cross my fingers that people realize what 
the city can do and how, how significant its impact can be. Well, David, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the election with me. Absolute pleasure. And I wish uh, the candidates who are the kind of candidates I would support lots of luck. Mm-hmm. The ones I don't, um, I, you know, I admire them running. It's, it's actually a, a, a tough thing to do to put yourself forward to your friends and neighbors. And, uh, you know, hopefully we see some really bold stances, particularly on, on housing, transport, and the environment. And if we do, we could end up with a city that's far more equitable, far more livable, and the kind of place that we all want to continue to live in. All right. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Cheers. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please tell the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Steve Clark, and the incumbent Mayor of Toronto. If you have a moment, give us a rating on iTunes and help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all one word. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or tips, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-O-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, best of luck to all the council candidates out there. May your lawn signs sprout like weeds. Cheers. Cheers.